0: This is Pathways to Resilience with Melissa Santos, the podcast where real people share real stories, helping us build our playbook toward resilience. Welcome back. Uh, Thanks for joining us again on Pathways to Resilience. Um, I'm really looking forward to the conversation that we're going to have today with our guest, India Harville. and in acknowledging disparity, um, particularly highlighting this um, during Black History Month, and the the theme of Black History Month um, this year in particular, I think that really not only calls to action, but also to education and understanding, particularly those of us um, from the from white the white race and from privilege, to not just um, not just put those posts up that we support, but how are we really taking steps to better understand disparities, how they show up, how we contribute to them um, and take action. So um, I'm excited for how this conversation may inspire that um, in me and others. So welcome, India. India is the founder of Embraced Body. She's an African-American disabled and queer disability justice activist. Her work centers reclaiming the body as an often underestimated pathway to decolonizing ourselves, to foster social justice, equity, and inclusion. She holds a BA in psychology from the New College of Florida and a master's in integrative health studies from the California Institute of Integral Studies. I met India actually first found you on LinkedIn and thought that your work I had just seen some of your pictures of your dance and your body movement and was really struck, sent you a message, and then all of a sudden you showed up as a consultant working with us with the Momentum Collaborative as part of Community Solutions' DEI initiatives. And so that serendipity was really cool. So happy to have you. Welcome.
1: Hi. I'm so glad to be here. And thank you for having me. And thank you to everyone listening. I feel like you learned a little bit about me from my bio, but... My name is India Harville and I use she and her pronouns. And I'll give a little visual description of myself. I'm a black woman. I have medium brown skin, long black locks. And today I'm wearing a a camouflage dress and some large black headphones. And you've already learned I'm a disability justice activist and a dancer and a somatic educator. And the organization that I founded Embrace Body really works to center the body as a pathway to personal and collective liberation. And I'm so grateful to my elders, my ancestors, and my mentors, who've really helped me crown in the work that I do today.
0: Thanks, India, for that beautiful introduction. Um, so we learned a little bit about you and your work, but maybe how did you come to tell us a bit about more about Embraced Body, um, and and the work that you do through through Embraced Body?
1: So in 2011, I've been chronically ill and disabled all of my life. I didn't use that language as a young Black person. My family really was like, don't center all of that for yourself, really um, strive for excellence. And that was their survival strategy. And I deeply honor that. And later in my life, I chose to take a slightly different path. But around 2011, my um, neurological condition got very intense and I was unable to move my right side for about two years. And Mm. I got a wheelchair and I found that so liberating. I got back to dance classes. Mm. I got back out in the world. But then I was confronted with a lot of ableism and people saying, oh, you poor thing, you're wheelchair bound. And I was like, no, my wheelchair is freedom. There were so many things that happened. Mm where my experience was different than how people were narrating it. And that really was the birthplace of Embrace
0: Body. Isn't that powerful that your people's, uh, we have that, right? Our people's biases, assumptions, their own um, narrative of your experience through their lens. They saw the wheelchair as um a problem or a challenge and your experience was this is liberating <laughs> i can i can dance and move more freely um, and how often do we do that right do we assume other people's experiences um and we we create we create judgment um without even maybe realizing it because we're putting things through our own lens rather than that person's here listening for that person's experience um so I was so struck by our first conversation. But how about just starting with um, what we as a country, we don't often own our own. I talk about our own biases. We don't often own or acknowledge not only our own biases, but our history, like our actual history as a country or the disparity for people of color in so many facets of our society. How do we just start getting comfortable with looking at that and acknowledging that it exists?
1: I love that you wanna dig right in. This is such a great question. And I think some of what I'm gonna share today will be that it always, in my opinion, takes multiple approaches. And it really varies depending on our race and other identity markers. So it's important to know like as BIPOC folks, we are living with the impacts of historical and present day disparities. It's just our lived reality. So in some ways I think um, BIPOC communities can be supported by learning to center joy and self-care and boundaries. So I think the work looks a little different there. That's not to say that BIPOC don't have a lot of healing work to do. Um, that can be a range of like emotional work, being okay with grief and anger and other feelings. Um, you know, my bias is always going to be that we do some of that work through working with the body. And it makes me think of Resma Menikin's work. And I think it's important that we keep pacing ourselves and coming back to our healing as we can. Um, and I think it's slightly different for white folks. You know, it can take carving out some intentional space whether that's by yourself or with other white folks to look at these things. So always genocide, enslavement, other types of violence are gonna be hard to be with. Um, Remembering that people of color have to be with these things and don't often have a choice is an important step. And it's important not to ask BIPOC for our sympathy. If feelings feel challenging for you, that's not to say you're not actually experiencing challenge. As white folks, you can do that work with other white folks and support each other. And if you hit your max, take a little break, but always come back to it and having that strong commitment. So getting more comfortable with being uncomfortable and not leaving your body really can support this process. I want to shout out one of my colleagues in this work named Bruin Rendon, who runs Wise Body Somatics. Who supports BIPOC and white folks to be able to deepen in this work and then support it, my thinking around this as well.
0: Oh, wow. I think, and I learned this really through our um, work with the Momentum Collaborative that while it is so important and powerful for us to come together as both BIPOC and white folks to have conversations, it also that we have really different experiences. And needs also space to do that within our own race. Um, And in our work um, as community solutions, when we had, there were sort of the BIPOC circles and then the others, there was definitely as a white leader. So one, there's like, absolutely, like, yes. And then there's this, oh my gosh, but I just, I want to know their experience so I can be supportive. And it's like, nope. let us, you'll go talk about your own experience that you can be, you can be supportive by creating shifts in culture and um, organizational culture. And um, and so the even just the discomfort with the separation and yet also honoring that, um, understanding that the BIPOC, uh, certainly within our organization, um, our BIPOC staff needed that space to be able to come with their full voices and actually build that up because... Just be- because of everything that they, as you described, live with every day—the racism, the all the systematic things that are here now and ha- were here are here now because they were there generations ago—impact people's voice, feeling like their voices can truly show up, that can truly be heard. And um anyway, that whole that piece I, again, I think like this come together. Let's be a boiling pot. Let's, you know, whatever like. No, there's really different different needs in order for us to be able to then come together in community um, and truly be inclusive of each other. And it also reminds me of the work, which is now exploding, and I love it, of Trisha Hersey um, and the NAP, the NAP ministry and this idea that rest is resistance um, of really how are we coming into our bodies and breaking the... Um, um. I don't want to say cycle but the the capitalistic expectation that comes out of white supremacy culture that it's go 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 produce 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 and we're all victim to that we're all um but we, it's it, it shows up differently you shared with us what in the pre-meet that you were a researcher um and that your previous work as a researcher identified evidence of disparity in health outcomes for people of color and i think that piece um, is so concrete, right? Some of these other pieces, um, I think, sometimes, particularly for white folks, maybe stuck in some white fragility, or are like, okay, but you're not a slave. You know, you're not being enslaved now. It's like, mm, well, um, but this, these health disparities, I think, really speak to what we know, how we know trauma. Again, trauma now, trauma that has passed down through epigenetics can impact not only our emotional health but also our physical health. So. Can you share with us some of that research that you were a part of?
1: Oh my goodness. I don't know if you really want to open this can of worms because uh, it was another lifetime that I was a biomedical researcher, but I was really passionate about what we were studying. I'll highlight one study um, that we did. It was on ethnic differences in asthmatic airways. Mm. So we were really curious why even when we understood we were controlling for variables like uh, the race of the doctor and the patient, their insurance status, class status, et cetera, black and brown folks were still disproportionately dying from asthma attacks. And through our research, we actually discovered that even though asthma disproportionately impacts communities of color, the majority of asthma research prior to our work use white people for their studies. Mm. Mm. Amazing, right? Mm-hmm. And we actually discovered that BIPOC symptoms were totally different. We have a lot of wow. upper airway symptoms, like itchy throats and itchy ears. Sometimes it presents with less wheezing. And so BIPOC were getting turned away from hospitals because their symptoms didn't align with white symptoms. And unfortunately, they were dying. Wow.
0: Let's just pause there. For, I mean, so here's uh, wow. So and 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 turned away. I'm imagining because if the research within the medical field is being done on white folks, that research leads to the list of symptoms your doctor's checking off when you go to the ER to say, oh, yep, this is an asthma attack. And because people of color were not checked, those they had different boxes that were be that weren't on the list. It was like, no, you're fine. You have allergies or something. Absolutely. you have hay fever by and then they and then having that deb- fatal fatal results
1: right and i feel like for bipoc communities this we didn't need this research right to tell us this we were living it and right a, a fun fact about this is that i came into that work because i was a participant and as an asthmatic myself i had had the experience of being turned away from the hospital because i wasn't wheezing and my mother was a nurse, and she would advocate very strongly for me. And many times when they checked how much oxygen, like what my oxygen saturation was, I'd be
0: admitted to the hospital. Mm. Wow. So if there wasn't that fierce advocacy of your mom saying no, she then when they actually ran the proper test, it, you, were, you were not well enough to be admitted. And when you're talking about just for people that Maybe um, research isn't their gig when you're talking about the controls, because this isn't about you walked in and you had brown skin. It could have been about that. That could have been a piece of it. You walked in and you had brown skin. But you're talking about even if I have brown skin and so does my doctor, even if I have good health insurance and I'm I'm going to a high quality you know, um, medical center, even if with all of those things, I'm still turned away because I'm not click I'm not checking the boxes of the research that even that doctor, that person of color is going off the white research for their own for their in their within their medical practice. Am I get am I understanding that correctly? Absolutely. And thank you yeah. for breaking that down. Yeah. I think that's an important piece to to see that it's it's so in the disparities are so ingrained within so many all <laughs> all of the systems within our society that it's not just about um was someone treated differently w- what do me as a white doctor look at you differently because of your skin and my own biases it's that the syst- the medical system within which i'm working and can bill and um and was trained it within itself there are uh, disparities that are even in, in if i am the most inclusive person or whatever aware person I am not giving you the same level of care. How did that show up in COVID? Because I know that it did from your perspective.
1: It showed up in COVID in so many ways. Again, a lot of understanding about symptoms and who, you know, a lot of times BIPOC communities have a lot of distrust with the medical establishment because we've been experimented on, because we've been sterilized against our will, all kinds of things. So it's not like a lot of BIPOC are like, I want to go volunteer for this research study, yeah, yeah, and yeah. let them do controversial yes. things, to me. yeah,
0: right? Because that's gone really well in the past. Let's do exactly. that again.
1: Yeah. So a lot of times, the volunteers who are coming in for research are white, and we saw that same thing happening with COVID. Who were the vaccines tested on? Who were the treatments tested on? Often white folks. And that doesn't always equate to the same outcomes for people of color. There's so many ways that disparities showed up. Uh, The kinds of advertising that was available and the way things were communicated about COVID um, often left out many communities, not just BIPOC communities and having things in Spanish, having things in multiple languages, those types of things, but for example, um, black and brown deaf communities really had an incredible lag time before information was available um and translated into American Sign Language so that they knew what was happening while wow. or how to handle the fact that often for language access they needed to see people's faces and now people's
0: faces were covered with masks. So you don't want me to keep going. <laughs> I mean, I would love to, but I get it. Yeah. I think I mentioned it in our initial conversation, and I don't think I've talked about it on any episodes, but I always bring it up when I do trainings around trauma-informed care and specifically understanding historical and cultural trauma and just like what epigenetics are because that's so powerful. And I want to just talk about this rat study because when you talk about Black and brown people being experimented on or being um, sterilized against their will, again, I think that a lot of people go to, okay, but that was like a long time ago. That was, that was not you. Why, how does that impact you in India today? And I'm not going to try to make assumptions, Melissa, right now on how that impacts you, but I'm going to say what I know about our brains. And so there was a, a rat study done. Well, there's rats, those, those guys get, get tested on all the time, but, um, and it's at least a decade ago now, but um the the researchers offered the rats regular water and rose water and over time the rats preferred the rose water it was, tasted sweet whatever um after some time whenever those rats would drink the rose water they would be electrocuted and so um because as creatures their fight or flight was uh triggered and they were like yeah no more rose water because that's going to kill us that's going to end our species in this research, the grandchildren, so two generations later of rats, avoided rosewater and they had never been exposed to electric shock. But their brains, be- for survival, because that's at the end of the day, we are mammals and species who, who want to survive. That's what we really. And for survival, they're the epigenetics or there's uh, you know genes in their brain going, don't Drink the rose water. Their ancestors were telling them through their genetics, and that to me, when I that uh, research for me was really life changing, mind changing, thought changing. To say this is, it, it was one of those like, whoa! Like I got it, but now I get it. This is so much bigger than this. Isn't about my experience or what I bring to the world, or it's about how I can in, can change things or influence things or be an ally. To the things. But that when your brain is telling you, don't trust that research, that's done really awful things to us in the past.
1: Yes, this is so important to talk about because I do think intergenerational trauma can be explained through this. And also, yes, the epigenetics and the brain research is really provocative, but also my grandmother told me that. right? And my grandmother told my mother that. And So I'm getting messages from my great mother, great grandmother through my own family that are also affirming these same messages. You don't trust the medical establishment. Now I've learned that and I'm going to train my children that way as well. And that's where this work around changing things and working with intergenerational trauma is really important in order to shift some of those narratives and maybe re- open some pathways to different possibilities we really have to do that work with ourselves and think about how we impact the next generation
0: yes and then I'm thinking about from the white and i and not all but my experience um when I think about the stories that were passed down for generations that were so well not only through grandmother great grandmother mother but also just the education system around our white history our whitewashed history that those are the stories that are um, being taught to me we're receiving very different stories about the reality of I guess that's what I'm struck by in this moment Um, just even just you and I having grown up hearing really different stories that then puts me in a position of like our country is amazing. What are you talking about? Like we did all these things. Like the like the the Native Americans got corn from Christopher. Like it was like lovely. It was cowboys and Indians, you know. Um, and how much needs to be undone around that? Um, because those stories stick with me. Could stick with me. They don't. Um, but to be to say, I don't get it. I don't understand. I can't understand your fear, your experience, because what I've learned is this, you know, freedom for all kind of story. Right. And all of that messaging that white supremacist culture pushes, like,
1: I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I did this by myself. Yes. Not acknowledging that I owned slaves and then I leveraged wealth um, from their work, right? That's not inside of the narrative. Yeah. Yeah. So then you have people saying like, oh, well, people of color just need to work harder. I did all of this myself, not acknowledging the kind of intergenerational wealth that supported you. And that's not to take away anyone's accomplishment right. and what right. folks have done, but right. really understanding the complexity and the multigenerational experience of this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I could talk to you for hours. Um, so... I think so. We also so we talked about, okay. so how do we even start this? How do we even begin to um, create healing and um, and and work towards towards justice in meaningful, authentic um, ways? Um, And you you talked about how it starts with creating safety. Um, What does it take to create a kind of safety that can create real dialogue and real change?
1: I think this is actually a complex question. And as I was reflecting on it, I realized addressing disparities is such an important part of creating safety that we often overlook. So it's really hard to cultivate safety if you continuously live in deeply traumatic and unsafe living conditions. Mm -hmm. So there's a privilege in being able to talk about creating safety that I think it's important to acknowledge before I answer the question.
0: I so can appreciate that, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So what's safe for one person that may not be safe for another? And this shows up strongly culturally as well. Bike pop communities have very different practices around how loudly we speak, how closely mm-hmm. we stand to one another, all of these things that sometimes white folks may not even be aware of. And so what feels safe can get lost in um, the different experiences we hold culturally. I think we talked about how I hold safety as, especially when we're talking about this kind of privileged safety. Mm -hmm. I think that's an inside job. Um, We live in a world where our external environment doesn't conform to our individual safety needs and we're too different for that really to work. So, you know, back to the body for me, working with somatic tools, doing things to regulate our nervous system so we can expand like our window of tolerance for difficult conversations and experiences
0: feels like the solution, at least a piece of the solution to me. Sounds like the start to the solution, right, is that instead of looking externally for safety to be created, which, as you mentioned, how would how would anyone know? what feels safe to me there are certain things I imagine there are some universal what we call I, and I'd be actually really interested to talk to you further other times around in our trauma-informed work what we can what people consider universal precautions um, and whether or not those universal precautions actually take a cultural enough of a cultural look at things um, another conversation you and I there's all these <laughs> sidebars we could do but um, so So talk about some of that um, somatic work and the central nervous system and that that creation of safety within.
1: So So I want to add one other thing before we talk about the nervous system. Um, I feel like it's really important that our spaces, like we need to be doing this work at the individual level. There's always a collective level as well and really striving to make our Um, places of work and places where we engage more inclusive to different ways of being that don't conform to white supremacist cultural values. So again, that's another place that we have to stretch in order to make sure that different folks inside of different spaces um, have a little bit more room to show up as their authentic selves and to
0: feel safe. Um, can you give, because this notion, it's not a notion, this fact um, of white supremacy culture is um, an area that I'm becoming more and more and more aware of. And um, can you give some ex- examples or talk a little bit more about um, about how, maybe just a couple, maybe that you see that come up in, in your work with folks? Um, as you do work with sort of organizations, what are some examples of ways that white supremacy culture is cre- is not creating safe spaces for people to show up as their authentic selves?
1: Mm-hmm. I'll give a little trigger warning here. I'm going uh-huh. to speak about uh, police engagement for a moment. So um, one time my family was out and my family shows love by having really intense conversations and debate and yelling and really going hard on different conversational pieces. And someone actually called the cops, oh my goodness, and said that something must be wrong. These folks are yelling, right? So for us, We were just having conversation at the volume and in the way that felt comfortable to us culturally and as a family. And someone else perceived that really differently without checking in, without thinking about their own bias or assumption, and then made a decision that Mm. really could have been
0: disastrous. Yes. Yes. Yeah. What a, that's a really good, powerful, unfortunate example of making assumptions of how safety, just the safety of. Someone not calling the police on you um, because you're having a loud voice, just debate conversation out in public can look different for different people. Um, that
1: the police create safety. That's true. Yeah. Whereas right. that's not our. Right. You're
0: all oh, of at as. Yes. <laughs> yes. Right. There's a problem over there. Let's call the police so that we can make sure everyone's safe. Yeah. No, actually. Right. That's not your. Yes. Oh, thank you for pointing that piece out. Oh. So. How about let's just do a, a little few minutes um, before we get to our final question here on um, on that central nervous system and somatic piece. That idea of um, well, I guess maybe this is the last question around resilience. Um, you can tell me, but how do how, what are ways in which we tap into our own ability to create internal safety? I think that. There are
1: lots of different ways and it's about experimenting and seeing what works for you. I'm actually going to sneak a little bit of an answer into an earlier question you asked about universal things. Mm. And in my experience, I struggle with the idea that things are universal. I think that there can be exceptions. I think working with a lot of disabled bodies that often don't conform to what we think is universal. I think working with BIPOC communities where what's called universal can be code for white supremacist universal constructs. So I'm really cautious about that. And so I don't know that there are universal practices to me in somatics. I think that there are things that we try on and see how it works for different bodies. Um, I think this work also is racialized. I think oftentimes for white folks, we're working to develop capacity to be uncomfortable and stay engaged. And sometimes in communities of color, we're actually growing a skill set around being able to be uncomfortable because we're comfortable, because mm. of comfort is the place of discomfort. That's the unknown for us often. And so uh, a
0: lot of the work inside of somatics includes... Can I pause you real quick? So being comfortable is uncomfortable? It can't. Because be. I can't get too comfortable. If I get too comfortable, what? how is that safe? Is that kind of what you...
1: Absolutely. Or like, I, I'm so accustomed to being uncomfortable. Uh-huh. That's my life living in a lot of disparity and struggle. Uh When I have moments that don't feel like that, they can feel really
0: activating. Mm -hmm. That's super powerful. Sorry to cut you off, but I just really wanted (laughs) to highlight that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so I think a lot of work in semantics is about trying things on and seeing what works for you and doing really small pieces of work to start to expand our capacity uh, that work can look like doing deep breathing. Does that work for you? That really relaxes some people. It really activates other people. Try a couple of rounds, 30 seconds. Do you feel better? Do you feel worse? And just notice that. And then try another tool like humming. Okay, I humming makes me feel soothed. This is a good tool. I have what I call a glimmer notebook Will I write down the tools that really work well for me? I also might jot some notes about things that didn't work for me and maybe try them on a different day. And then if it doesn't work two or three times, then I know, hey, this isn't necessarily something I want to put in my toolkit. And then I'm building my capacity to create uh, a sense of safety and to stay with things that are uncomfortable and remain feeling safe. So it's a lot of practice and trial and error
0: yeah i really appreciate that perspective on um the cautions around uh universal assumptions and um and that not a that of of trying things on i love that idea of noting it noting them oh this was really this was a good one um this didn't work maybe i really wasn't in the space let me try it again um that our body there's so many ways to tap into and shift um for me whether it's discomfort or anxiety or any of those things it's that energy in the body that needs to release this rather than withhold and i think there's so many ways to be able to to do that and i just made this this connection kind of me when you were talking about um so often that universal precautions are universal whatever, are um, Um, are founded in white supremacy. And again, white suprem that were I feel like sometimes when I'm talking to white folks these days about that, there's like this reaction because they think like, I'm not a white supremacist. I'm not. It's 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 about how the ideals of whites, whites being in power, white, you know, whites being the more important supreme being are infiltrated throughout all the pieces of our society um, but I went back to that checklist of the doctor with the asthma because the, the, what you were describing was well, right. Like, of course, a medical doctor, we would assume, has the, the correct symptomatic list for something like asthma. And so, those were universal, they were looking for universal symptoms that you didn't have. But those universal symptoms were based on research only on white people. Um, And so, yeah, they were universal for white people, but they they weren't universal for human beings. Disgust. I was struck by that.
1: So accurate. And I feel like, you know, sometimes I use the word dominant culture Mm -hmm. um, instead of white supremacy because folks are like, no, I'm not in the KKK. Right, right. (laughs) And that's not what we're talking about. Right,
0: right. And then I, of course, then I'm like, okay, we'll just go read about it. And then you'll totally, you'll get it. You know, our obsession with productivity, being on time, um, just these different, so many different things that, um, yeah, that that, that how, of how it shows up. Uh, so at the end of every episode, I ask about, I ask people, what is resilience? And um, I shifted the cult, the question a little bit for our conversation, because I think, In some ways, I began to think, is there privilege in being able to tap in our resilience? There's not a universal um, definition of resilience. And so for you, India, um, from your perspective, what is resilience and how is there disparity in one's ability to tap into it?
1: I really love the questions that you gave me and it made me think a lot and I might define resilience as our capacity to bounce back from challenging mm-hmm. moments in our lives. Um, but I think sometimes we use the word resilience when we actually mean surviving. And I want to distinguish those two things. So good. Yeah. Um, disparity forces BIPOC folks to cultivate this survival resilience. And we're often asked to be resilient during really hard circumstances while facing inequalities and racism and structural violence. We're asked to bear injustice and to keep a smile on our face, which is Mm. insulting um, and challenging. But we've learned to survive in often really unsurvivable conditions. So we've gotten good at this skill set, but it often invisibilizes our pain. So I really want to talk about resilience for BIPOC in a different way that includes addressing inequity and centers us thriving versus surviving. So I think that that's my distinction that I want to make there. And then I think sometimes, again, for white folks, sometimes they're, and you know, it's hard to talk about any community as though there's a universal experience, but perhaps better said, folks who have privilege, who have Mm -hmm. a fair amount of privilege, really, I think, often struggle with resilience, um, because they often don't have as many things in their lives that require cultivating that skill. Um, Mm -hmm. And so often, I think, when we talk about people with privilege and resilience, we're actually talking about comfort. And that's not actually resilience either. So, if you're only resilient because everything is going perfectly well for you, and <laughs> when something gets hard, you will no longer be resilient. So, I think that there's again some skill building on both sides and some additional vocabulary to add. Like everything we're calling resilience might need to be
0: teased apart a bit. Yeah. I real I appreciate that, like teasing apart resilience versus survival, and this not not saying that inequity is okay, but but this um, skill set really that when you're facing that constantly, that you that you're tapping into that for survive. When are you tapping in for survival, which may be a lot of the time. Versus when are you tapping into that for a bounce back from something that, you know, life happens, but not that an entire system was actually pushing you down that you shouldn't have had to bounce back from to begin with. Um, and the, the resilience on the sort of that privilege side. Um, I, I like just I'm having all of these like, like, whoa moments. Um, I was actually just having this conversation at dinner last night with, of um, a, a, a friend a white friend uh, of privilege um, who is actually starting some somatic work with herself and because has realized that she has really pushed down a lot of her own um, stuff right her own trauma stuff from childhood um, and has compensated for that in ways of success and other things that were really much easier for her to come by um, Because of her privilege. And so that that privilege really has gotten in the way and masked, you know, her authentic self. And um, I'm just, again, I'm just this kind of like teasing of just getting my brain to say how different that is, how, diff- how a different form of resilience that is than um, someone that doesn't start with, doesn't have that privilege to be able to mask it, to, to create the comfort. Right.
1: It's complicated. And that's not to say that people with privilege don't have trauma. Right. 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 Because I almost said I almost said something universal there. (laughs) I don't think you're wrong. But yes. But that research is based on many white people. (laughs) Experience uh, or have experienced some trauma regardless of their privileged status. So um, so many layers to to weave in, and I thank you for making sure to keep the complexity
0: in the conversation. Yeah. Anything else you want to add before we, we close up? Certainly want to know um, where people can find out more about you and access your work.
1: I just want to say thank you so much for having me. This has been a really rich conversation, and I've learned a lot from being in dialogue with you and I'm deeply appreciative of that. Um the best way to connect with me is probably through my website which is embracedbody.com. Um one thing to note is that it's embraced with a d like it's past tense or you've been embraced
0: as <laughs> body.com. Great. India, I agree. I um I'm glad that I don't have a meeting right away because I am about to go um, do some journaling um, just with all of the thoughts and insights and and curiosity, Uh, further curiosity that this conversation and our previous conversation um, brought up for me. So thank you for um, spending time with me today to have this conversation and uh, just for how you show up in the world. I was When Indy and I um, both got on the call, we both had sort of distractions going on within our workspaces. And I was telling her that, and I'm sure I I hope you all experience this just through the way she speaks and the way she be, um, that you just have such a calming, uh, grounding presence. And that's been the case each time I've um, been in any of the affinity circles or anything with you. So just really appreciate how you show up in the world and how you've um, have you shown up in this conversation with me today? Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Pathways to Resilience, an initiative of Community Solutions. For more information, please visit our website, www.communitiesolutions.org.